We're starting a brand new series, and uh, we are super innovative in our series titles. This series is all about... Look at you guys. At least you can just close in prayer. Um, uh, so this whole series is about others, um, and about serving specifically and loving other people, um, which, which for pretty much all of us isn't terribly new information. Um, in fact... Anybody who was raised around a church, you were raised perhaps in a church, or you just knew about churches, um, all of us g- grew up with a general idea of core to the tenet of Christianity, core to the belief, core to the practice, and the manifestation of our belief in Jesus um, is this idea of loving your neighbor as yourself. And as obvious as that is, and uh, for many of us, for many of us who are raised in churches or around churches, again, you don't have to be raised in a church to know that if you were just, you know, you drove by churches your entire life because you're on the south and we have churches on every corner. Um, no matter who you are, no matter where you're from, kind of central to the idea of Christianity is this love of neighbor, of this service and love towards others. But what we all know is also true is that for many of us, that might be kind of a general belief But at the same time, um, there are massive areas of our lives that we're not others-focused, that we are very selfish. Um, As obvious and as apparent for us, again, who are raised in the church, and you grew up in Sunday school, and it was to love people, and it was to serve people, and you went to mission trips, and um, you helped out and perhaps volunteered on Sunday, um, and you knew that service to other people was core to the faith. Um, What's interesting is that for many of us, so that might be true, we don't always live that out. And the proof of that is if you're in here this morning... And you weren't raised in church. In fact, if you're in here and you're questioning God, you're questioning if Jesus is real, if Christianity is real, if the Bible's true. I mean, you're just kind of on the, the skeptic side or the cynical side or the just, I'm not really sure side. Isn't it true that one of the main reasons that you don't believe in God or question if God exists is because you've heard Christians your entire life who said they believed in God and you've read enough of the Bible to know That one of the core tenets of God, one of the core tenets and the core beliefs of Christianity, the manifestation of that belief is a love for other people. And you've seen Christians who aren't very loving. In fact, not just not very loving, exclusively loving to the people who look like us, act like us, dress like us, talk like us, believe what we believe, think what we think, make what we make, and are like us. This is why for many of us, we get real selective around this time of who is our neighbor, um, especially who is our social media neighbor. If anybody knows, um, the end of the world is coming on Tuesday, um, so pray for us. And in that, right, I mean, you've, we, we've all been through this. You have that person that, you, that was your neighbor. You would have said that that's my friend. You would have said that's my, you know, my person. And all of a sudden, they post this outrageous political rant, no matter what that political rant was, and you just disagree, disagree, disagree. And they were so outrageous, and they're so dumb, and you're, you're so smart, and oh my gosh, you should just be president instead. But for whatever reason, they posted all this stuff, and you decided that I'm going to unfriend that neighbor. They're no longer going to be my neighbor because they don't see the world the same way that I see the world. And for many of us, if we're being honest, we can easily justify to ourselves that we are others-focused people because we love people who are like us and we love people who love us. And Jesus' command through the scriptures is not that you would love the people who are like you, not that you would love the people who look like you, who act like you, who think like you, who believe like you. In fact, you would love people You would actively serve people who are nothing like you, some of which who may be your enemy. And there would be an active participation in serving them. What's interesting for this 
is if we're being real honest, for many of us, the, the idea of loving people and serving people, again, we can make the case for ourselves. But isn't, isn't this true at the same time? That for many of us, the people that we ought to love the most are the people that are closest to us, and the people that are closest to us are the people that we oftentimes love the least in terms of active service to them. The people that, you know, are in your family that are perhaps your roommate or perhaps, you know, your best friend, your, your, your daughter, your son, your, especially, you know, kids, not kids, your adults for most of you. Anyways, you know, your parents, you know you ought to love your parents, you know you ought to serve your parents, are the people that are closest to you. But yet, and still, those are the people that are oftentimes the easiest to be selfish with. I remember when I was growing up, um, I grew up in a household that was very uh, manners-focused. So everybody in my household, it was yes, ma'am, no, ma'am, yes, sir, no, sir. In fact, if you, if you raised like a, in a household where your dad, well, he was dad, but most times he was sir. Anybody got a sir, dad? Okay, a couple of you guys, military family specifically. All right, so this was like, you know, if I left my cereal bowl in the sink, and my dad yells, Ben, you know, it's not, what? It's like, oh. You know, the wrath of God slash dad is coming when that happens. You know, Ben, sir, you know, that, he's like, that's right. You know, that's kind of that thing. Well, for me, when I was growing up, my, um, my grandma lived next door to us. And I would go at the school. We'd go and play in the streets. And we'd go do homework at my grandma's house. And for my grandma, it would drive my parents nuts because all of my friends and all of my friends' parents when I would be at their houses, I would say, yes, ma'am, no, ma'am, yes, sir, no, sir. I mean, just, you know, best behavior. And then with grandma, it was like, what? Grandma? You know, yeah, of course I've done my homework. You know, I'm going to go play football on the streets. Get out of here. And isn't it true that sometimes the people that we're closest to are the people that we can be most selfish relationally with? But for all of us, we would agree, we would agree that core to the belief in Christianity is a service to other people. And the way that Paul would say it, in fact, we're going to read this kind of at the tail end of the sermon. In Philippians 2, Paul would say, hey, Here's what it looks like. Here's the end goal. Here's where we're going with the entire service, with the entire series. Is that you and I would do everything that we do. Do nothing, in fact, that's how you would say it, out of selfish ambition and vain conceit, but in humility, consider everyone better than yourself. In other words, everybody you see, everybody you talk to, everybody who posts, everyone who you lay eyes with or to on planet Earth, you see. That's better than yourself. And you serve them regardless. So basically, we're spending this series saying, how in the world do we get there? How in the world, in an authentic way, and not in a begrudging way, not in an I got away, but in a way that just is compelled to love and to serve. How do we get to the point? Where from the bottom of our heart, from the most sincere point in our faith, is a desire to love and to serve a broken and a hurting world around us who is just like us. Now the temptation in this is to jump to, so this is what we ought to do. This is how we ought to love. This is how we ought to serve. And so I want to kind of take a backwards approach to it. Instead of saying, hey, let's focus on ourselves and the idea of serving. Just on the ground floor of it, it takes us first focusing on God and realizing who God is, what God has done that makes it impactful for us. In other words, our service to other people, our service to other people is a reflection of God's deep 
down love for us. So we want to spend a little bit of time this morning just simply talking about God, simply talking about the glory of God, simply talking about the bigness of God, because in order for us to be motivated and to be compelled to love people because of the fact that we've been loved and we've been compelled, means we first have to realize that we have been loved and we have been compelled. In other words, it's, it's, it's to say it this way. A couple weeks ago we talked about serve people, serve people. Loved people, love people. But if you don't first realize the depth to which you've been served and loved, there's no way that that's going to cause a train reaction in your heart that compels us to love and to serve other people. So we're going to start in the book of John. If you ever read the Bible, and you've probably read this before, it's John chapter 1, verse 1. John, who wrote um, a, a couple different parts of the New Testament, and the four books of the New Testament that are Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are the gospel stories, are the stories of Jesus' life. So John begins his, his book in chapter 1, verse 1, who is a little bit different, by the way, than everybody else. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, pretty similar. In their accounts, a little bit differences here. John has a pretty different perspective and begins it with the prologue. In other words, before I tell you about Jesus, before I tell you about his life, before I tell you about the implications of his life, let me give you a little preamble to who this guy was. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. Now, Pretty intricate statement here. Essentially, first he talks about this idea of word, which was, a, which was a cultural way for him to identify with different people groups to say, this is, this is logos is how the word that they used, but specifically, this is God, this is Jesus. So he says, okay, so in the beginning was Jesus. And Jesus was God, and Jesus was with God. He continues on. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through him, And without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. So we start saying, okay, so here's what you got to understand. Jesus was fully God. And in his fullness of God, God came to planet Earth. That the righteousness, the holiness, the bigness of God dwelt in this person of Jesus. Now, that is also not new information for us. In fact, for most of us, that's pretty normal. And my purpose this morning is to make that impactful. Because in order for us to realize how loved we are, it has to first have us in awe of God that God would love us. In the beginning of that last song, it says, we, you know, for eternity, we, you know, we surrender or something along those lines. I'm atrocious at lyrics, by the way. You know how the pastors sometimes say, I mean, if you knew a Bible verse for every song lyric you knew, I'm like, I would misquote the Bible constantly. But for me, for me, it's this idea that if we're going to be loved, we've got to be in awe of who God is. Because that ought to impact us. That ought to just drive, I mean, just a, I mean it, just, it just ought to be so impactful. It ought to drive a spear through our heart. That's kind of a, a, a weird, sadistic type of way to look at it. It ought to be like when DeAndre gets, Francois gets sacked every freaking time, and he just wears it. You know, it's like, I have never seen anybody consistently get hit so hard. He does not, like, shoulder into it. He doesn't do anything. He's just, I'm like, he got murdered. That's just all that happened when he got sacked on that play. That's how the realization that God became incarnate. In fact, chapter, chapter 1, verse 14, he says this, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Now, for them, that was outrageous. That was outrageous because in their familiarity with the Old Testament, they knew that if we were to see the glory of God, 
If we were to look face to face and see God in all of His glory, we would die instantly. And it's as if he's saying, okay, so before I tell you about who this guy is, before I tell you about the implications to his life, you have to realize the fullness of God, the deity of God was pleased to dwell in the person of Jesus Christ. That when God walked the planet Earth, it was a huge deal. In fact, as I'm, as I'm thinking about this and we read these verses from time to time, there's one specific chapter in the Bible that, that I call it kind of, it gets me in the, 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 the goodness, the bigness of God mood. It might sound like a weird kind of concept, but I'm just like anybody else. Sometimes, you know, you're just in the, in the mundaneness of life, you forget how big God is. You forget the God that we're dealing with. This is the section of verses that always drives me back. This is like the get in the big God mood type of verses that we're going to talk. So this is like, you know, husbands, if you have a wife, this is like when you put on, you know, Barry Manilow or Marvin Gaye, light the candles, set the mood. This is like the mood setting big God verses for me. So pray for me later. Isaiah chapter 40. <laughs> Isaiah chapter 40, verse 12. Now, in Isaiah chapter 40, Isaiah's talking to the nation of Israel. It's the Old Testament before Jesus walked on the scene. As he's about to speak to the nation of Israel, um, the nation of Israel was suffering from basically a little God syndrome. They would create idols, and they'd say, this man-made piece of wood, this man-made piece of gold, this man-made piece of whatever, is bigger than the God of heaven and earth. They wouldn't see the magnitude of God. They wouldn't see the bigness of God. (laughs) So it's almost like in Isaiah chapter 40, God just had enough and said, let me tell you for a second, Who I am. Verse 12. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span, enclosed the dust of the the earth in a measure, and weighed the mountains in the scales and the hills in a balance? Who has measured their spirit of the Lord? Or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult and who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice, taught him knowledge, and showed him the way of understanding? In other words, so who taught God? The answer is nobody. Because he was fully God. He was fully sufficient in God and his own self. And he is a big enough God that if you were to just take all of the mountains, all that stuff, and put it on a scale, it'd just be like dust to him. He says, behold, verse 15, the nations are like a drop from a bucket. All are accounted for on the du- as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastland like fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering. Now for them, they would offer sacrifices to God. They would get a bunch of wood together, and they would get the best animals. And they would offer, offer a sacrifice to God and say, basically, God, this is sufficient. This dedicates, this declares. We're going to bring our best animals because, God, you are the best and you deserve the best. God, just, just tell you something. If you were to get all of the wood from all of the nations in Lebanon, if you were to get all of the beasts of the field, I mean every animal, and you were to offer a burnt sacrifice to me, that would not come close to touching what I truly deserve. And that might sound egotistical, but the reality is, it's true. It's only narcissistic. It's only egotistical. If it outreaches who God really is, because you just don't understand. The reason perhaps that you would think that, that that's narcissistic, that I suffer from megalomania, is maybe your view of God 
It's too small. He continues on. All the nations, there is nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing in emptiness. Verse 18, to whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness compare with him? An idol? He says, come on. A craftsman casts it. A goldsmith overlays it with gold. And he casts for it silver chains. And he who is too impoverished or too poor for an offering chooses wood that will not rot. He seeks out a skillful craftsman to set up an idol. That, by the way, will not move. In other words, and so you can get all of your best people, all of your most skilled people, get the best wood that you have, get the best metal that you have, get the most choice stuff. And at best, it's not even going to move. Now, very few of us woke up this morning after spending a good night last night casting an idol. You know, like carving our own little totem pole, putting some chains around and thinking, this is God. You know, that's not really relevant for our culture necessarily. But we all do this in our own specific ways. We minimize God to the God of success. We minimize God to the God of comfort. We minimize God to the God of relationships. We minimize God to the God of being acceptable to people around us and to the culture around us. We minimize God. To whatever we put before him. And as obvious as it is that no one, no one, no one would think that those things are better than God. We, like the nation of Israel, create idols that our life speaks are bigger than God. He continues. He says, do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundation of the earth? And I love this verse. This might be my favorite verse of the Bible, which, by the way, I know that I say that all the time. And I was thinking about that this week. I was like, you know, as I was preparing, this is kind of like a random sermon rabbit trail that I always go in. But I'm like, you know, I feel like maybe that's disingenuous when I say it, but I think it's a lot like dessert when it's like, I could, I'd tell you probably with all, like I'd take a lie detector test and say my favorite dessert is apple pie. But then you bring key lime pie, and I'm like, I think my favorite dessert is key lime pie, you know? And then that group a couple weeks ago, Shannon, who you should just go to our group, our community group, by the way, just to get this dessert. Um, Shannon made this great s'more dip, which I've never had a s'more dip. That's the greatest thing to hit a graham cracker since real s'mores. And I'm like, you know, I think that's my favorite dessert. So just kind of like a point of clarity. He says, it is he, verse 22, who sits above the circles of the earth. It is he who sits enthroned above the circles of the earth. And its inhabitants are like grasshoppers who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in. Now, this is what we talked about a couple weeks ago. We talked about how crazy it is that God, in comparison to God, he is God and we are like grasshoppers. That God would send his son to die for grasshoppers. Like in our house, we kill roaches with the quickness. Like there is no, oh, well, perhaps that's a good grasshopper. It's like, no, it's a, it's a stinking roach. Are you kidding me? There is no way I would send my daughter, my one and only daughter, to die for grasshoppers. That's just ridiculous. And the realization, not just simply that he died for us, but that he became like us, is similarly outrageous. Because not only did he send his son to die for grasshoppers like you and I, incredibly valuable grasshoppers, grasshoppers made in the image of God, but grasshoppers nonetheless, he sent his son to become a grasshopper, to die for rebellious grasshoppers. I mean, come on. It's just silly. It's just unwise. It's just... Why in the world 
Why in the world would God love us so much that he would make his one and only son fullness of God into a grasshopper to die for rebellious grasshoppers like us? He says, by the way, I'm not finished telling you a little bit about who I am. He says, he's who the... That, who searches out the heavens like a curtain or stretches and spreads them like a tent to dwell in verse 23, who brings princes to nothing and makes rulers of the earth as emptiness. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely are they sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth when he blows on them and they wither. And the tempest carries them off like stubble. To whom then will you compare me? In other words, Your future might be important. Your career might be important. Your success might be important. Your relationship, your comfort might be of importance to you. But let me just tell you, compared to me, almighty God, there is nothing that compares. To whom will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on on high and see who created these he who brings out their host by number calling them out by them by the greatness of his might and because he is strong in power not one is missing and if you ever wonder of my bigness of my greatness of my goodness then i simply want you to look up and know that i created all of this and as the writers of the new testament would say sustains all things by the power simply by the power of his mighty word and this God walked planet earth that in him the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and so it's like John knows that his audience understands this, knows that his audience gets this, knows how crazy it is that God would walk planet earth and so in John 1.14 to finish that verse He says, and we have seen his glory, glory as the only son from the father, full of both grace and truth. In other words, and we have seen the glory of God. We have seen the magnificence of God. We have sat in awe and looked God face to face when we saw his son, Jesus Christ. And Jesus would go on to say that my being here on planet earth is not because I'm needy as a God. It's not because I'm sitting there thinking, oh, I people wish people would just acknowledge me. Sometimes we have this idea that the reason that God wants us to glorify him and wants us to acknowledge him is because he needs it. This couldn't be further from the truth. He is fully sufficient as God. It's because as God, the most loving thing that he can do is to demand us to acknowledge that he is the only thing worth glorifying with our lives. It's like as a parent, I know for my daughter, If I know what's best for her, and I ask her to put anything less than what's best in the center of her life, it is an unloving thing for me to do. And so Matthew 20, 28, Jesus says, hey, just so you know how this whole thing works out, that I have not come to be served, I have not come to be glorified, I have not come to put myself on a pedestal, but I have come to serve, to love, to pour myself out as a ransom. For many, that the entire reason I am here is to love and to serve you. Knowing this whole thought process, 
All this is kind of good in theory, where it's like, okay, great, you know, I'm, I'm impacted, this is insightful, this is maybe inspiring. But how far does it go? Because if I could tell you my story, I, I know I should love other people, but let me tell you about my sister. Let me tell you about my parents. Let me tell you about my roommate. Let me tell you about my kids. Let me tell you about this guy at my office and this guy at work. And the truth is, in any situation or any area that we're unloving and that we're selfish, we have great reason to be selfish, partly just because of self-interest. But as a Christian, it's probably a compelling reason. (laughs) So the question is, how, how far do you take it? How far do you go with it? How far do you serve? How far do you love? And Paul, again in Philippians 2, clarifies that and then engrafts it with the reason why. We are to be so loving. Philippians 2, starting at verse 3. He says this. So do nothing. This is kind of the manifestation of this whole belief system. So do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit or vain conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. In other words, do nothing out of ambition. Do nothing for the fact that I should and I want and I deserve, but you should consider everyone else better than yourself. Every person that you lock eyes with, every person that you talk to is better than you, and you serve them. And in fact, you should not look only to your own interests, but also to the interest of others. Having the same mindset among yourselves, which is that of your Christ Jesus, or having the same mindset as Jesus. In other words, and here's why. Here's why. Here is the big why behind we serve. Not because we ought to, not because we're good people, not because, you know, the Bible tells us so, and grandma told us so, and dad told me so, and my husband or my wife told me so, or my kids tell me so. Not because we should, because we're good people, because that's what God calls us to do and God commands us to. Though he does do all of that. He said, our attitude, our motivation should be the same as Jesus. Verse 6, who though he was in the form of God, the fullness of God, the righteousness of God, the glory of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Did not pull the God card, did not come down on high and say, hey, you should serve me, you should worship me, you should love me. Though he could have and he would have been right in doing so. Instead, he chose something very different to create for us the ultimate example and motivation. But emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men. Being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even death on a cross. And the essence of what Jesus did was simple. It was the realization that though these people are rebellious, though these grasshoppers, in a comparative analogy, are rebellious against me, have sinned against me, I inexplicably love them so much that I'm going to send my one and only son to be in their likeness. That they would come to the realization that you can't earn your way into God's good graces because I am innately too sinful and he is by definition so incredibly holy. And there is no way in the holiness of God that I could stand before God being a good enough person. 
And so he saw me in my sin and didn't count my sin against me, but sent his son to profess who he was and to teach incredible teachings. On top of that, to perform just inexplicable miracles, to substantiate and validate who he was. And that he would send his son to do what no one thought God would do. And God died on a cross. And on the cross, took the punishment, took the judgment, took the shame, took the cause and the penalty for all of my sin, for all of your sin, for all of our sin collectively. He took the judgment and the wrath of God that we should have taken. And died. And was obedient to God the Father. To serve us. To take away our sin. That no matter who you are, no matter where you're from, no matter what you've done in the past, no matter all the mistakes that you've made, no matter the mistakes that you made last night, last weekend, last year, last summer, regardless, that there is ultimate love, ultimate grace, ultimate acceptance, ultimate forgiveness, and it has nothing to do with what we do, but what has been done for us when God died on the cross. And then three days later, rose from the dead to substantiate and to overcome death. He said, God became obedient to death, even death on the cross. And this is what happened as a result. Verse 9, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And then this next thing, I think gives us the clarifying point that we kind of lead, read, you know, read as kind of a, a send-off, a sign-off. This is kind of like when you say amen and everybody just kind of says amen together. This is the thing that I think when we read, we just read it as a gratuitous statement. But I think this was the point. This was the clarifying point of the entire idea of why Jesus did what he did, of what Jesus' purpose was to accomplish, and what our corresponding purpose ought to be to accomplish, that we ought to love and we ought to serve out of a reflection for sure of God's love for us. We ought to be so deeply impacted that the fullness of God came in bodily form, died for me, sent his son, served me. Out of that impacted heart, it compels me to love and to serve everyone around me, to see no one as better than myself, because I am simply a sinner just like everyone else. But at the end of the day, that can run dry sometimes. We can lose motivation sometimes. And it can be cloudy on what to serve, who to serve, where to serve. How far do you go? How much more do you give? And he says, and this was the purpose. To the glory of God. The Father. In other words, and the whole purpose wasn't to do it because you ought to. It was to glorify God. The whole idea wasn't simply that Jesus was a good dude who did that for us. It was that his ultimate goal was to bring glory to the Father. That his death on the cross wasn't because we deserved it. It was because he, God, loved us so much that he sent his son to die for us. And when he did send his son to die for us, his son's motivation was to simply bring glory to his heavenly Father. When we don't know how far to serve, we ought to ask the question, what would glorify God in this situation? What would glorify God in this relationship? 
What would glorify God with the people who I don't think like? What would glorify God for people who don't believe like me? What would glorify God with people who don't act like me? What would glorify God with people who aren't from where I'm from? What would glorify God from someone with a different ideological view? What would glorify God with someone from a different religious view? What would glorify God for the people who are closest to me who I want to be the most selfish with? What would glorify God when I don't know how to empower without enabling? What would glorify God when I don't know how to help without hurting? He says this was, this was his motivation. You see, we serve, and you've got to get this, not because we ought to serve. We love our neighbor, not just because Jesus said so or because Grandma said so. We love God, and we serve people as a reflection of God's love for us to glorify God himself. That the purpose of Jesus was simply to glorify his and our Heavenly Father. And let me just kind of end with this. If you're in here, you're not a Christian, trying to figure out this whole idea, this whole thing of Christianity, how much different would that be? I mean, seriously. How much differently would you think about God? How much would differently would you think about the church? How much differently would you think about Christians? If the defining characteristic of Christians was that they loved and served anybody and everybody with no boundaries because they had been so deeply loved and they so deeply wanted to glorify their God through the way that they loved and served other people. How much differently would you think about church? How much differently would you think about the Bible? How much differently would you think about Jesus if Christians didn't constantly get in the way with their self-consumed, self-absorbed actions that honestly we are all, myself included, so incredibly guilty of? So my hope and my prayer in all this is that you and I as Christians as we launch into this idea of what it looks like to love and to serve, other people. What it looks like to take this manifestation of a love for God lived out in a love for other people. That we would do it out of a heart, out of a deeply compelled desire and passion. Not to do it because we ought to. But to do it because it has been done for us in our ultimate goal is to spend our lives, as Isaiah would say, glorifying the only one who deserves to be glorified. Because the greatest tragedy that can happen is you and I spend our entire lives glorifying ourselves, glorifying our comfort, glorifying our success to get to heaven. And realize there is only one name that will reverberate through the corridors of heaven for the rest of eternity. And that is the person and the name of Jesus. And nothing else deserves the glorification of my life. And that drives me to love. So how different, how different would your family be? How different would your job be? How different would you relate to your boss that drives you nuts? 
How different would you relate to that uncle or that aunt that's crazy and no one can stand and almost everyone's cut off communication with? How much different would your friendships be? Your relationships be? Would your presuppositions of people who don't believe like you and look like you and act like you and me be? If we were motivated as a reflection of God's love for us with the purpose to glorify God, and if ever we are unsure, simply asking the question, what would glorify God in this situation? And I'm going to pray, pray, pray for us as a whole, as a community, that this would begin to define and motivate who we are as Christians. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, God, thank you so much for this time together. God, we repent of the, all the times that we have put you in such a finite, small box. We've made other things in our life greater than you. And we repent. We are sorry and acknowledge the fact that we have done that. God, help us to see your glories. Help us to see your righteousness. Help us to see who you are. Please, 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 allow that realization to drive those of us who have put our faith, our hope, and trust in you, Jesus. The fact that we have so inexplicably been deeply and sacrificially loved, drive us to love people. And that we would be motivated and clarified through the desire to glorify you, our Heavenly Father. So God, I pray for everyone, self-included, in areas that we don't know, in areas that are gray and a little bit cloudy. We don't know how to love. We don't know the appropriate way to love. Would you allow us to simply ask the question, what would glorify you in this situation? And would you give us the wisdom to know what to do when we don't know what to do. But our heart is simply to glorify you, our heavenly Father. And would you make us into a community that is defined by the way our faith and our belief in you drives us to love people regardless of who they are. And it's in your incredible, powerful, wonderful, and matchless name that we pray, Jesus.